Every day, scientists are learning more and more about how human brains work and how many of us don't fit into the old-fashioned understanding of how brains should work. But a lot of ideas about parenting and familial relationships still need to catch up to the reality of human variation. Neurological differences are natural, profoundly valuable parts of being in a community together and in being part of a family. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your journey, I am here to explore with you. We are all in this together. Welcome to Neurodiverging. Welcome to Neurodiverging, Danielle here. Today we're talking about ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and its history. We've talked a bit about how, although ADHD is often considered a modern phenomenon and an abnormality or disorder, we actually have good evidence that ADHD is a normal neurodivergence. The presentation or traits of ADHD are due to a genetic variation, or possibly a couple, just like autism and some other things most medical literature currently classifies as neurodevelopmental differences. I talk about this more in last season's episode 107 if you want to check that out. Besides current technology that lets researchers actually look at how the brains of ADHD folks work in real time, we know that neurodivergence is normal in humans because we have a lot of evidence of folks with ADHD in the past. I know a lot of people feel like ADHD just appeared out of nowhere in the 1980s and has kind of taken over kids' brains since then, but that's not true. People have been writing about neurodivergences that look a lot like ADHD throughout history. So over the next couple of episodes, I'd like to review some of that history for you. You could definitely write a book or several just about this. There's a lot of research on this. I'm going to link to a couple of papers and some other sources in the show notes on neurodiverging.com. I encourage you to go reading if that's your thing. I do want to note that this history is biased towards the West because I'm an English speaker. I'm reading papers written in English. That doesn't mean there isn't ADHD in non-English speaking places historically. Obviously, there was ADHD world over. The lack of it in this podcast is just a reflection of what I could and couldn't access as a single person. If you are a researcher in this area of ADHD history not in the West, I would love to hear from you. Please get in touch. Before we dive in, just a little reminder to head over to neurodiverging.com for the show notes, to sign up for the mailing list, and to read the blog articles. I post a lot on ADHD there. It's important to me, so please uh, head on over and check those out. So let's get into it. First of all, how do we identify ADHD in history, in the historical context? Obviously, people did not call ADHD ADHD 200 years ago or 2,000 years ago. So first, we need to set out how we want to identify it in historical sources. I think there's probably a ton of different approaches to this problem, and I don't know that there's a correct one, but... You know, for the purposes of this podcast, I thought personally that the most direct thing to do would be to look at ADHD traits. So the obvious ones should be 
the traits that most professionals use to diagnose ADHD, since we think that they apply to probably not all, but at least a good percentage of ADHD folks. So for the purpose of this podcast, this exercise, I am setting those traits as inattention or different attention, hyperactivity or excessive activity, and impulsivity. I personally think that those three traits embody the majority of ADHD folks and are the um, perhaps most simple to find historically. Um, I'm not trying to say that they are like the most important ADHD traits or even um, the most indicative of ADHD, but just rather in terms of looking at historically written sources, they're the ones I think are the most noticeable. So that's why we're using those. When you look at those specific traits, you can find a history of children and adults with probable ADHD diagnosed under different terminology. So the terminology used to describe these folks changes based on the time and place you're looking at, which is why it looks like ADHD appeared out of nowhere in the 1980s. It was not called ADHD before the 1980s. So here is an incomplete list of other names for what we'd now call ADHD uh, throughout Western history. I am putting a link to the source in the notes. Um, some of these are kind of offensive. Um, I'm including them as a history lesson. I think they're important. Um, don't call anybody these terms nowadays. They are not accurate for any other reason. So, But some of the terms that ADHD folks used to be referred to as include things like brain injured or brain damaged, hyperkinetic impulse disorder, hyperexcitability syndrome, clumsy child syndrome, hyperactive child syndrome, hyperkinetic reaction of childhood, minimal brain dysfunction, organic brain disease, and nervous child. And of course, attention deficit disorder was the immediate precursor to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. Um, so you will notice in this list that a lot of these terms refer to a disease of childhood. Um, ADHD in adults wasn't really a recognized thing until pretty late in history. So a lot of what we're going to be talking about is ADHD-like symptoms in children, and that's just because historically that's where most of the medical professionals were looking for something like this. So the history of ADHD is probably as long and complicated as the history of humanity. But of course, we can only access little pieces of history through whatever documents have been left behind. And because of that, and because I don't want to just read a book about the history of ADHD to you, I'm just going to select some of the most interesting of those documents to present to you. And of course, links for more information on any of this are in the show notes. And I do have a few blog posts going into a couple of these in more detail if you are interested in them. So the first one I want to talk about is the obtuse man, and this is on the blog uh, if you want more information about this. But the obtuse man is the oldest reference to something that looks a lot like ADHD that I could find. And this was in a paper from the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry. And the paper is called Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder in Ancient Greece, the Obtuse Man of Theophrastus. And the paper argues that Theophrastus, who was a student of Aristotle and a Greek native of Lesbos in the 3rd century BCE, gave the Western world the first character who looks like someone who would be considered ADHD in the current day. Theophrastus wrote a short 
uh, collection of texts, which are summaries of character archetypes, where each kind of character is described by about 15 traits. And the character of interest to us is translated into English as the obtuse man, and he presents with features that closely resemble the modern description of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So for example, the obtuse man who is an adult seems to have issues with inattention and hyperactivity. Theophrastus writes that he forgets important appointments and he is so active that he exhausts his children when they play. He also has trouble planning into the future and sleeping. And those are not ADHD symptoms in and of themselves, but sleep troubles and executive dysfunctions are very common among the ADHD population. The authors of this paper compare the obtuse man, as Theophrastus describes him, with the modern DSM-5 ADHD symptoms, and they conclude that he would probably be currently diagnosed with this disorder as an adult. The authors claim that this is the oldest description of ADHD as we recognize it in adults in the Western literature. I was not able to find anything older myself. If you can, please let me know. I would be really, really interested to look into that. What I think is so cool about Theophrastus is that he wrote this work in the 3rd century BCE, so that's roughly 2,300 years ago, and yet the symptoms of ADHD are so clearly present that we can recognize them across culture, across language, and across a huge amount of time. If you have someone in your life who is stuck on the idea that ADHD isn't real, or that it's a modern day issue, or something created by a pharmaceutical company, or the public school system... Uh, tell them about the obtuse man, our ADHD friend from the 3rd century BCE. It's just so interesting. And like I said, if you'd like to learn more about the obtuse man, head over to neurodiverging.com for my blog post on him. Uh, there's a direct link in the information below. So now we're going to skip forward quite a bit in time. From around the time that Christianity rose to prominence around the reign of Constantine in 300 CE, uh, yes, I am an ancient history nerd. How did you guess? We start to see neurodivergences viewed in the West more often as forms of mental illness. So in this time period, the prevailing idea was that mental illness stemmed from some kind of moral deficiency of, of the individual. So if you showed signs of mental illness or of mental difference, the assumption was that you had sinned or acted in a way that was deemed religiously or spiritually deviant and that your mental illness was a punishment for your bad action or thought. And this is a big simplification, of course, of many centuries of medical and religious thought. But this idea prevailed widely all the way through the very end of the 18th century or so CE. So that is many, many centuries of folks with depression, anxiety, autism, ADHD, OCD, and other forms of neurodivergence being treated as morally inferior and almost morally contagious individuals. They often suffered significant abuse from their communities and family members. And on top of that, of course, they weren't able to access any form of treatment or help. So this began to change a little bit, finally, in the late 1700s, especially with the work of Sir Alexander Crichton. Crichton was a Scottish physician born in 1763, and he was very interested in mental illness and spent most of his career working with mentally ill patients, often in asylums. These places were considered the best place for the mentally ill at the time, but they were terribly abusive and extortionist. 
Crichton saw that many of his patients weren't morally deficient, but were suffering what seemed to be a physical ailment, and he was one of the first physicians to conceive of mental illness and similarly of neurodivergence as having physiological roots. Crichton became convinced that the mental illness and differences in thinking were not due to a patient's personal failing or deviance, but instead were caused by something in the body and in the brain and outside of an individual's control. In 1798, Crichton published a three-book volume, or a three-volume book, called, are you ready? I'll try not to mess this up. It was called, An Inquiry into the Nature and Origin of Mental Derangement, Comprehending a Concise System of Physiology and Pathology of the Human Mind, and a History of the Passions and Their Effects. That is a mouthful. But the books delved into whether the causes of neurodivergences and mental illness could be physiological, as he theorized, and if so, how they might develop. This set of books give us some of the first modern recognition of what we'd now call ADHD. Crichton called it abnormal, quote, attention. So in this work, Crichton described a kind of spectrum of abnormal attention with inattention on one side and then hyperfocus on the other side of the spectrum. And he refers to these types of attention as sensibilities of the nerves. So Crichton describes a person who has trouble paying attention to one object or task for any length of time, a person who is constantly flitting between different goals, who has either been this way from birth or who has had some kind of accident like a brain injury that created this behavior. So obviously we now know that having ADHD or a traumatic brain injury can sometimes look similar. They have the same symptoms, but these symptoms have vastly different origins, right? You know, if you fell out of a tree, you might have the same symptoms as somebody who is born with ADHD, but your brains aren't the same. Um, Crichton sort of lumped these two things together. So when he's discussing these, he's talking about traumatic brain injury as well as ADHD together. But traumatic brain injury cases aside, Crichton gives a pretty good description of something we can recognize as the attention variances often found in ADHD folks. In another passage of this book, Crichton describes the hyperactivity part of ADHD, which is, again, very recognizable. And um, I have this passage for you. I think it calls to mind the sensory processing differences that a lot of ADHD folks report. Let me read this to you. Quote, In this disease of attention, every impression seems to agitate the person and gives him or her an unnatural degree of mental restlessness. People walking up and down the room, a slight noise in the same, the moving of a table, the shutting a door, suddenly, a slight excess of heat or of cold, too much light or too little light, all destroy constant attention in such patients, inasmuch as it is easily excited by every impression. When people are affected in this manner, which they very frequently are, they have a particular name for the state of their nerves. They say they have the fidgets." End quote. Doesn't this sound like sensory processing disorder or sensory differences to you? To me, it's spot on. And again, I suspect that Crichton was grouping together folks who we might separate under different diagnoses today. But quite a lot of neurodivergent people of all stripes report sensory differences and sometimes meltdowns related to sensory processing overwhelm. And certainly plenty of ADHD folks fall under that umbrella. So this is roughly the evolution in the theory of thinking and learning differences in the West from about the 3rd century CE to the 18th century CE. 
Once Crichton introduces this idea that neurodivergence and mental illness are not related to sin or moral character, but are rather physiological in nature, we see several other prominent physicians start to jump on the bandwagon, and through that work, ADHD begins to be investigated from a medical, scientific lens. I'll be talking about that more in a future podcast. In the meantime, please check out neurodiverging.com for some other articles on the history of ADHD, parenting a child with autism or ADHD, or working with a partner with ADHD. And please come back in the next couple of weeks for more history of ADHD. Thank you so much for being here with me today, lovelies. Remember, we are all in this together from 2,000 years ago to today. 